Conyers and Travis, you're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig, and today we're going to be bringing you some really inspirational cookbooks. Uh, the first one is going to be um, part of the, the current rush on paleo cuisine, but uh, with different different goals. She will explain to you. We're going to be talking to Michelle Nam. Uh, Tam, Michelle Tam, and if you've ever gone num, 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 you'll get an idea of where this book is going. It's called um, Num Num Paleo Let's Go, and here's Michelle Tam. Wow, great. Oh, Michelle Tam and Henry Fong have done it again. Their latest cookbook is Nom Nom Paleo Let's Go subtitled Simple Feast and Healthy Eats, and it's, it's a Lulu, this book. Um, for people who don't know, what tell us what nom nom means, Michelle. So nom nom means when you're eating something so delicious that you can't stop to talk. So you're just going nom 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 nom, <laughs> just like Cookie Monster when he was munching on his cookies. <laughs> well, I told you before we got on this call, actually, that um, I, I looked at this book and I, I saw how much work went into it, and it's just absolutely amazing that you pulled this all together. Now, you do the recipe development um, and the, the recipes. Um, your husband, who who's a lawyer by day, does step-by-step photographing of, of putting the recipes together, as well as... Um, uh, these um, cartoons, um, and, yeah, and 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 it's just like it's wonderful. You know, uh, the, the first time we interviewed Amanda Cohen, do you know her cookbook? Uh, I'm Dirt not Candy. Sure. Well, it, it was she set it up as a comic book, and it oh, was. Oh no, so, I do, I do have, I have seen that one. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, I mean, up until that point, I, I, I was getting um, exhausted with cookbooks because they were all so much the same. So it was a real delight. And this book is a delight for a number of reasons. Um, now, you and and, um, and Henry are both um, Asian from um, – you are both from – descended from Hong Kong, right? Yeah, our parents are both from Hong Kong. Yeah, um, which, you know, let's say a, a word of encouragement to Hong Kong right now, I guess, huh? Yeah. Um, but but you, yeah, there's so many things I love about this book. I'm tripping over my tongue trying to, to say things about it. Um, and you also do a, um, a, 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 a um, blog, and, and you do, um, it's your third cookbook, and, well, you do everything. And you're very socially active on social media, and, and your your food is influenced by so many different things, not just um, from the the Hong Kong and uh, traditions, but also from the, the region in Northern California where you grew up, and you absorbed all these other. So it's really an international cookbook. Is that what I'm trying to say? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a good assessment. I mean, I think the San Francisco Bay Area is definitely a melting pot of a 
a, like a whole slew of immigrant cultures. And so I grew up, you know, eating my mom's food, which is mostly Cantonese, Cantonese. Uh, food. Um, but then as soon as I would leave the house, like I'd go to my friend's house and I'd be amazed and delighted when I'd be served a casserole. And then when we'd go out to eat, like we'd get tacos or Ethiopian <laughs> food or Indian food. So for me, this is my, the, the recipes that we have in this book really are my comfort foods. Like I know a lot of people during the pandemic were um, gravitating towards sourdough baking or other types of foods like that. But for me, the foods in this cookbook really are my comfort foods. Like, you know, like chicken velvet soup with spinach is kind of something my mom would make all the time. Like ginger scallion sauce is something that my mom would just whip up and we'd put on poached chicken and basically anything. Um, and it was her secret weapon to get food on the table quickly and have it not complain. <laughs> <laughs> But you know your even your your list of ingredients and equipment. I want to mention that you um, update the your technique to accommodate all kinds of new equipment as well, uh, which a lot of people haven't done in, in their cookbooks. And so I think that the people will welcome being able to use their um, instant pot and, and their. You know, and other more modern things, uh, pieces of kitchen equipment. And and the other thing that I, I have to mention is, although uh, you've been on the paleo diet for 10 years, it's your form of paleo. It's not, um, I mean, I really welcome the fact that you were not um, a stickler for every single rule about paleo. Uh, let's face it, you make room for all kinds of other things as well, including something that a lot of people are going to be concerned with, is you accommodate dietary restrictions and clearly mark them so that people who have other restrictions besides the paleo requirements can can follow these recipes. That's a mouthful. That's just getting started. <laughs> yeah, Your pantry I, notes. I, I... Yeah, I joke, that I'm, I joke that I'm nom-nom paleo-ish because after kind of eating paleo-ish for like 10, 12 years, like I'm not someone that wants to strictly adhere to like a rigid set of yeah. guidelines because like how fun is that? Like I, I think that once you learn more information and, you know, about different things that affect your health, you should learn from that and move on. Like I don't think you should be stuck to a certain way of eating. So I think of paleo as a roadmap in terms of, um, you know, this is the way I feel the healthiest if I'm eating home-cooked meals with, you know, vegetables and healthy protein and healthy fats. But obviously I love food, so I'm going to detour once in a while. But I I know when I head back to paleo, it, it, it I feel better. But I totally am not trying to convince anyone to be paleo. I just want people – to cook their own meals and be mindful of how food affects them, and yeah. and you and know, also have that, that like, you have delicious as a very top level um, in, in, important ingredient in all this. Yeah, if it's not delicious, why would you keep eating this way? Like life is too short. Exactly. So, um, listeners, I think that you will really connect with this book. 
and with this author because um, she's so relatable. <laughs> just, and through the book, um, you mentioned the word fun earlier, Michelle, and I, I want to say that also you have a great sense of humor in this book and, and, and you make things a lot of fun. But you also know things and share information that, I mean, I think I'm pretty up to date with, with all kinds of uh, cooking things. I've been done this for so long. But I didn't, I never even thought about, I never heard of coconut aminos, for example. <laughs> I mean, do you yeah, have well, so much? Yeah, well, times when you, when you can't do gluten or soy, you gotta, you gotta look in like the, the hippie, like 70s, health food stores to kind of find things. <laughs> that might yeah. work. So coconut aminos is actually something that I think was a very unusual condiment. It's made from fermented coconut sap, and it's brown like soy sauce. And it actually tastes like soy sauce. It has a lot of um, umami, but it's also a little bit sweeter. But it is a it is it makes a pretty good soy sauce alternative if you pair it with some fish sauce to kind of add uh-huh. extra um, salt. Um, but because of paleo and other people who are kind of looking for gluten-free alternatives, like coconut aminos is now something that most people can find um, at their regular supermarket or at least, you know, you can buy it online pretty easily. Well, I mean, it's, it's great. And I, I appreciate it also because it's just my taste. I guess. <laughs> um, my taste, and I don't know, is umami. I mean, you, you, this book is filled with umami. Uh, ingredients and dishes and, and so forth. Um, have you always been really keen on bringing the forward the umami flavors? Because some of these are amazing, including your building blocks. Because you talked to us a little bit about your preparations um, that you call building blocks, like your mushroom seasoning. So I think, I mean, I'm all about shortcuts to deliciousness. I mean, as someone, when I started, you know, Nom Nom Paleo, I was a night shift pharmacist working in the middle of the night at, you know, Stanford Hospital, and I had two young kids, and so I was really busy, but I also am a very picky eater, and so I always wanted things that were, you know, I wanted to cook things that were really delicious, but I also wanted it you know, quick and easy. And so I quickly learned that if you figure out which ingredients have high amounts of umami, which are naturally occurring, um, you know, you can just throw them into your dishes or combine them. And with umami, if you combine ingredients that have umami, like the amount of umami, like, expands exponentially. Um, So, like, if you combine, like, fish sauce and tomato paste, like, it just tastes so much better. Um, and, like, dried shiitake mushrooms, like, coconut aminos, bacon, like, all these things just add so much more flavor as opposed to just adding salt and pepper, which I think a lot of people are like, oh, I'll have salt and pepper or whatever, you know, dried spices in my pantry, you know, that have been there for years and are no longer potent. Like, that's why your food doesn't taste good. (laughs) (laughs) I have a a question. Um, I want to mention, by the way, you love shiitake mushrooms. I love shiitake mm-hmm. mushrooms. I have them in my refrigerator almost every single time you open your door. Um, and they're and, super and, healthy for you, too. Pardon? And they're super healthy for you, too. 
Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. Um, I, as an aside, I have to side with Ollie. Um, my granddaughter hates mushrooms as well. I never understood how anybody could hate mushrooms. Yeah, my younger son is like that, but I make him eat it. Or I stop it very small. <laughs> or, you know what, there's actually one of the secret ways that I incorporate um, mushrooms is I, like I have a magic mushroom powder, which yeah, is a now that, blend. Tell us has, about the magic yeah. mushroom powder, because that looks like my, it's worth my making. Yeah, that one is very delicious. But you don't even have to make it. We actually just started selling it. That and my umami stir-fry powder both have secret uh, amounts of mushroom in it. So the magic mushroom powder has salt, dried porcini mushrooms, um, thyme, red pepper flakes, and black pepper. And that one I kind of sprinkle on in place of salt. I'm kind of more of my Italian dishes because I think the porcini really adds to, oh, right, you know, yeah. anything that I have like tomatoes or tomato paste or kind of Italian-y food. But then I developed another um, like flavor booster for this book, which is my umami stir-fry powder, which again right. is also salt because I use it as a salt su- substitute. And then I have shiitake powder, which you can buy at most Korean markets or um, online. So it's got salt, shiitake powder, uh, scallions, Would you garlic. sell these things on your own brand? Yeah, we actually just started selling it through a spice company called the Spice Lab. But if you go to nomnompaleo.com slash spices, you can buy them. But, you know, it all kind of happened really quickly, and we just announced it this week. And so it's kind of like, oh, wow, it's great. And and they they actually just sold out, but they're blending new ones as we speak. Um but I like them because any time I would reach for salt, if you reach for this, it'll just make it so much better. Yeah, well, I mean, I it's a natural like, for you to to expand into having um, the produced stuff, I think, so I don't know. Well, you um, know, I, it's not so much that we want to have any, like, big food empire. Like, selfishly, I just like that someone is producing these blends so I can buy them instead of making them myself. Uh-huh. Well, I think it's a wonderful idea. I mean, sign me up for some of these. They're great. Um, now, I had a question. A lot of times you recommend brands. Um, mm-hmm. How do you do that? Are you not nervous about specifying brands? No. So I don't. I don't. I'm not sponsored by anybody. Nobody pays me to tell, like, for me to mention them. But for people on, like, a paleo diet or a restrictive diet where they're really, um, you know, worried about quality or the ingredients in a specific, um, you know, product, I specifically call out names just so they know if they buy this one, you know, as long as the formulation hasn't changed, that it is a paleo-friendly product. Like, for example, like Red Boat Fish Sauce, I love, and I've used them for years. They have, they're not a sponsor or anything like that, but it is the most amazing fish sauce. And unlike other fish sauce brands that you can buy on the shelf, the only ingredients are anchovies and salt. Uh-huh. Because if you pick up other bottles of fish sauce, sometimes it's got sugar or MSG or all sorts of other stuff or it's diluted with a lot of water. Um, and so I purposely call out brands that I like and I, and I, feel like I have um, 
established enough trust with my readers that they they know that I'm not being paid to tell people what to use. But these are things that I stock my own kitchen with. Well, that you know, sounds wonderful to me. Um, tell us, or our listeners, about your your suggestions for how to use this book. So my well, I we actually secretly designed this book to be kid friendly. So we really hope that it inspires kids to like get in the kitchen and be interested in cooking and interested in what the actual ingredients are in their dishes. Um, but we have no, I mean, we have no set prescription. We just think that people should open it and just flip through the pages and hopefully be inspired by the photos of the finished dish and not be intimidated by any of the steps because every step is shown to them. Um, you know, there are little cartoons everywhere encouraging them. Yeah, your husband, did we mention that he does all of the cartoons, he does all the illustrations, all the uh, photography, and that's in addition yeah. to and the graphics, uh, the graphic layout, the design of the whole book. That's why I said it was just amazing how much work went into this book. Um, and, and all the while keeping a day job, right? Yeah, no, he's he's one of those overachieving people that <laughs> make everyone else look lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I love the photographs he has of you. <laughs> you look so animated at all of them. I mean, do you, I do you well, get drawn into you- the whole spirit of the book. He's probably art directing me and saying, you need to smile. Stop with that frowning. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, what are some of your, some of, 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 you'd like to direct people to certain recipes. It's, it's a stupid thing to ask, but um, I just wanted to give you an avenue for sort of, Describing some of, of your favorite recipes. I mean, I know that you said every single one of these in this particular cookbook is a very special favorite recipe of yours. So it's sort of not fair to ask you that, but I'm just thinking of it as a path for for uh, listeners to get an idea of of what kinds of resources they can find in this book. Yeah, I'm happy to kind of go. I mean, obviously, I like all the recipes, or else they wouldn't be in the book. Um, but yeah. I think. The the fact that I was able to come up with gluten-free, grain-free, refined sugar-free um, Cantonese egg tarts, I think, was a big – was I was very proud of myself. I gave myself a pat on the back for making paleo dantat because I didn't think I could do it. Um, it's something that I'd missed because we used to order it all the time at dim sum and at my favorite Chinese bakeries, um, but I didn't think I could recreate the crust properly with you know, paleo ingredients, but I, you know, I tested many times, and then I presented it to my super picky parents, and they both (laughs) said that it was very close, which for me, I think, and for them, that is high praise, so I was like, oh, this is great, I passed my my mom and dad's test, so I think that is something I'm proud of. Um, I think I like that instead of using noodles, um, I use spiralized uh, daikon or spaghetti squash. So we use a lot of vegetable alternatives for noodles. And so I have like a, a chicken chow mein that uses spiralized sweet potato as the noodles, but it's got kind of the traditional um, 
chicken stir fry uh, topping. Um, like I have a shoyu ramen that I like a lot. That um, people that I've served it to have not missed the noodles or the soy because you still have the tasu on it, the ramen egg, and all of the stuff that people like. And the broth is really tasty, but also very simple to make. Um, so there's a whole bunch of different things I think in here. I mean, I think that the building blocks are my favorite just because if you just oh, make new sauces or, um, you know, these seasoning blends, you can easily make dinner for your family without too much thought. So I tried to have easy recipes and then also harder kind of showstopper celebratory recipes. Like I have a Cantonese um, duck, which is like a roast duck that you would find in Chinatown, like that's like spatchcocked. Um, but I use my doctored all-purpose stir-fry sauce as the marinade, and it works really well. You know, I mean, I think that, that, that um, people using this cookbook are going to find a lot of little surprises. Now, expect the unexpected listeners. I mean, I'm looking right now. <laughs> Indian spiced shepherd's pie. <laughs> That's not something you'd automatically expect to find in this cookbook, is it? No, and that is definitely so. That is a perfect example of one of those kind of fusiony melting pot dishes that I came up with because I love shepherd's pie and I love Indian food. And I was like, well, why don't we make the meat kind of like a keema? And then on top, we'll have. Um, you know, some whipped sweet potato, and it, it works. It's, it's, you can make it ahead of time. You can serve it to company. It makes great leftovers. So it's one of those, and it tastes great. So it's one of those dishes that can kind of do it all. Well, you know, you, you're not short on whimsy. I mean, <laughs> I said humor, but you also have whimsy. I'm looking at another recipe. This one's pesto potato mitza. <laughs> Yeah, that's like if you're paleo, you can't eat a traditional pizza. And so, you know, and sometimes the best part is the topping. So we have made a crust out of rolled out um, Italian sausage. So the crust is the sausage. And then we topped it with thinly sliced, you know, potatoes um, and and pesto. And it's really tasty. And that is actually inspired by a pizza that I used to eat um, when I was in college in Berkeley at uh, the Cheese Board Pizza. They had a pesto potato pizza that I loved, and I was like, you know what would make this better? If the crust was made out of sausage. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you're, you're edging up to a, a question I had um, that you, you were quoted as explaining this uh, for some other purpose, but... Um, how do you go about, I mean, it's hard to explain to the average home cook, but how do you go about conceiving of a brand new original recipe? Because this book is loaded with them. Um, you know, I think a lot of it is just me trying to recreate food I love to eat. And I've eaten a lot of different food in my 47 years. <laughs> um, and and I think that after doing this for a while, like there's certain, you know, like I think an easy swap for Asian is like I do the coconut aminos plus fish sauce as a soy sauce alternative. 
Um, but I don't know. I think I just like, I mean, I, I'm so, there's a term in Cantonese called waisik, which means you kind of live to eat. And it's also like you're kind of gluttonous. And that's just me to the core. So I think that I'm always just <laughs> developing new recipes because I just want to be able to eat it again. <laughs> well, I mean, I think listeners would be hard put to find another paleo cookbook that has desserts in it. Tell us about your dessert section. Well, you know, I do have some desserts in here, not as much as in, like, definitely more than in my previous cookbooks. But there's definitely paleo dessert cookbooks. I mean, if anything, that's the thing that people crave the most once they go paleo or they kind of do this type of eating. Um, I think what's different about my cookbook is I just chose things that I love to eat. <laughs> and I'm very genetic. So I made, you know, paleo cream puffs that are, like, grain-free and gluten-free and refined sugar-free. Um, you know, I have uh, galette in there. Um yeah. And clafouti and, like, a bunch of other, you know. But I think the Don Tot is probably one of my favorite. But I think in the pandemic when I was craving something fast and quick, my favorite dessert is probably the mug cake because you can make a paleo mug cake in your microwave in 90 seconds. <laughs> and so it's kind of like an instant dessert that's not that bad for you. And I can do three versions. You can do vanilla chocolate or matcha flavors. I told my husband I saw this picture of the chocolate cherry granola. I mean, your husband's photographs really helped to sell this, these recipes, I'll tell you. It's gorgeous. That is the thing that he is most concerned about. Like, I'm concerned about whether the recipes work and whether they taste delicious, and Henry cares about how it looks. And so if it was up to me, I would make a brown stew all the time because they're delicious and they're fast. But Henry is like, no, that is too ugly and I cannot make it pretty. <laughs> so we can't do that. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I love your, your saying about how your sons are complaining about how long it takes you to, to do the book. And you, you said that, um, that, among other things, your husband, between photographs and illustrations always wants to take the time to straighten up your mess so everything looks tidy. I thought that yeah. I got this wonderful picture of you trying to cook, his taking the photographs and then trying to clear everything away so it looks like you're very organized and pure. Yeah, if people only knew what a mess our house is, like Henry is very good at making sure the shot is very uncluttered and clean. But in reality, it is a mess, like all around it, on the floor. If you pan out, it is a disaster. <laughs> well, I mean, the end product is hardly a disaster. The end product is just loaded with information, tips, delicious uh, delicious recipes, gorgeous photographs, uh, just ingenious um, comics and cartoons and other illustrations. Um, you should be really proud of this book. Again, oh, listeners, it's called Nom Nom Paleo. Let's go. Now, a lot of her her uh, books and, and programs are Nom Nom Paleo, but this one is the one called Let's Go, and I think that this is the one that you poured a lot of soul into, Michelle Tam. So 
uh, get it, listeners, and enjoy the, the delicious food that's also healthy for you. Michelle, you are a genius to do this, and you're wonderful to talk to. I thank you so much. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up, um, I love this conversation I had with Dee Ritali. Um The book we're talking about is called Baking with Fortitude. And just listen in. It's a wonderful, aspirational cookbook. We're talking to Dee Ritali, um, who is, well, I mean, we get a lot of cookbooks, Dee, but I have to tell you, this one's an absolutely amazing book. It's called Baking with Fortitude, Sourdough Cakes and Bakes. And I swear I never even heard of, of this ever before. <laughs> yeah, but as I told you, it's, it's a new, right it's a new up, but old phenomenon. Yes, it is. And it's, um, yeah, and, and I, I wish we knew about it beforehand because we, we've been in and out of London for a lot of the family, the whole um, Peter's family were usually there for Christmas. We haven't done that for two years. Yeah. Um, they were in Cornwall and, you know, the, and his sisters in Yorkshire. I mean, it's just been awful. But I love London awful, and yeah. the dining scene. And they're really having a tough time, aren't they? Yeah, we're we're, uh, we're kind of in it together, but it's a struggle. And uh, oh, we, we've lost our perspective completely because it's also January, um, which is tough enough without the restrictions that have been placed on us again. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, being placed on everybody. I mean, everybody is struggling somehow, I think. Well, eventually we'll, we will be able to get back to London, and, and I'm going to head straight for Fortitude, which is your, your bake shop. <laughs> so where, 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 where is Fortitude exactly? It's behind Russell Square Station on a, on a muse, a very old um, protective muse called the Colonnade. So it's um, close to the British, besides, close to the British Museum? Close to the British Museum. It is very close. Yeah, it is. It's like ten minutes walk from there. Um, yeah. We're we're really hidden away um, in a, an old muse building, which um, used to be. The, beside us is a, a building called the Horse Hospital, which is a very historic um, arts building now. But that actually used to be the ho- the hospital where the horses went to when they got sick oh, because really? of the carriages. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. The carriages used to travel around London and then they'd come there to bring their horses into the hospital. And uh, our little bakery was one of the units where the horses would come and wait to go into the hospital. So Um, it used to be a stable, technically. Interesting. It's about 100 years ago, I think, now. Um, Mm -hmm. So really fascinating, old, very historic, very... uh, uh, we, we always think we have a ghost of something in our country. <laughs> Lots of strange things happen there and doors get stuck. And, uh, so very historic and very fascinating story to it. Well, your story is fascinating too. You were born and raised in Ireland and um, you have family in Morocco. Your mother-in-law yes. lives in Morocco and, and I gather yes. a whole bunch of other relatives. So yeah, you travel there a lot. Um, yeah. And and you are as an individual um, a, a unique 
original genius type, I think. I mean, of course, your taste is so perfectly aligned with um, mine. I mean, I, I don't have a real tough sweet tooth, and, and you go for less sugary stuff and stuff with a lot more depth of flavor. And uh, I, I mean, I, I'm just I was amazed reading the, the recipes and your reasoning behind all of this. Um, how, first of all, the title, okay? You do in your introduction talk about Fortitude means a number of different things to you yeah. and to other people. Uh, give us a working, not necessarily definition, but expectation of what you're heading for with this book. Well, I think uh, what I've been wanting to do for many years really is to promote the craft of baking because, you know, I I think I represent many home bakers that kind of... Um, you know, look up to chefs and pastry chefs and they buy their book and then they, they're a bit lost and they say, oh, you know, they can't follow the recipe or it doesn't quite work for them. Whereas I just wanted it to become something which was very much about the craft of a daily home baker that had a little bit of edge to it. Because uh-huh. my reality is I, I learned from my mother and my grandmother. So it wasn't, I eventually went to, to work with uh, a really well-known baker and cook, Justin Blank. But my my real grounding in this and food was through my upbringing in Ireland. And I think I just wanted other people to feel that sort of homeliness, I think, of what I do. Um, even though it's a little bit, in ways, it's a bit scientific and a little bit nerdy. Uh, I think... <laughs> Yeah, so it kind of is. It's, I, I don't think I realize it until I start hearing myself talk about it, and I think I probably bore everybody, everybody around me. But it is really about us doing things with our hands. You know, that it isn't, there is a preciseness to it because you want your product or your cake to work or whatever it is you're making, but there's also a craft to it where there's berries and plants and herbs and all sorts of things that go into it, and you have to add it in and then wait for the next day or the next day and just for it to be a process. But it's also about, for me, it's also about mental health aspects to our lives where we, because a lot of people, it's all, in London it's very fast paced and it's very uh, much about sort of what you just see on the outside. And what I wanted to do was to encourage people to bake and to bake in a slightly different way, but to also have a hobby. It becomes like a hobby because with sourdough baking and um, looking for herbs and foraging and trying to keep the waste of it under control, it becomes more... Yeah, you're, you're zero waste, yeah, which I'd love. Yeah I, yeah, I really try to be. I mean, it's... It, and it's also using, you know, bringing a little bit of the countryside into a really major city, which... Our bakery, you could, when you walk into our bakery, it's like being in the countryside. It's, you know, people say it's like being in Ireland or somewhere in the countryside in Scandinavia, or it's not like being in a big flash space, which London can often be. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's very natural and it's very welcoming. That's what we're about, really. Now, and, and you, let me ask a, go ahead. Let me ask a, let me ask a question, which I'm sure is plaguing, plaguing our, our, our listeners as they, as they recognize that there's something about fermenting that in, that's involved in baking. 
and I'm not sure. I'm not sure my mother would ever have believed such a thing existed. <laughs> yeah. But, but then, but then, my mother was notorious in our family gatherings. For she, she made like most British housewives, she made her spice cakes, as she called them, around yeah. about September. Yeah. And then, and then they were, and then they were cut up to serve on Christmas Eve, which was just happened to be my sister's birthday, and therefore a yeah. day when my mother and father entertained all our relatives. But 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 one year. She messed up, <laughs> and she, she forgot. She forgot to put in the sugar, and she put oh. in a second quantity of of uh, flour. Oh, <laughs> so, so, so to, that's called a tragedy. Yeah, it is really. To, to say to say the least, this this was not one of the great moments. <laughs> <laughs> in my, my mother's what cooking, a and it was, and it was the kind of was the kind of thing that you wanted to make sure no one remembered. But of course, everybody it never happened did. again. Yeah. But, but, but still, still, no. I, I don't think my mother would have ever have thought of the fact that you needed to ferment things in order to make a cake. Now, yeah, help, in, help, in help our listeners it, to understand that. Well, I think, you see, my mother would have made, or still makes, her Christmas cake in August or September. Uh-huh. And, you know, they, they would pour whiskey over the top or a whiskey syrup until yeah. December. And that's, that was a way of preserving. So in a way, right. it's a similar process. It's, it's funny, I never it, thought of that. My mother's bourbon cake, that's what she was doing, yeah. preserving it. Yeah, it's preserving it, and it's and it was at a time they would have started making cakes at a time when sugar might have been scarce. I know for my mother it was like sometimes you couldn't get everything that you needed, exactly. and it was like from then learning methods of preserving or looking after or using things sparingly and coming up with all these amazing amazing recipes. Really, um, at a time when Ireland you wouldn't you know you only got oranges in January, which is actually <laughs> the right way to use product but they used it because they you know they made things they fermented fruit and vegetables and kept them for a year and they made marmalade and then they had fruit cake which was preserved and um you know they keep cakes there for up to a year so my mother my mother my mother made seville orange marmalade at the same time as your mother did when it when it it was available in the stores because it had just been harvested Yeah. yeah and that and that's isn't that the um, that's an amazing way to eat food? It's part of the only way something. to eat fruit. <laughs> it was part it of is. being cheap. It is really. <laughs> well, they would buy crates of them, wouldn't they? When they oh, would yes. come into the shops and you'd order a crate, and then the whole house would stink of actually making the smell of making marmalade. Never uh, really appealed to me, but <laughs> our house would smell profusely of of, of orange, you know, boiling oranges, uh, which kind of you know wanes after a while, but. Yeah, that, that's how they, that's where I learned to do things. And they made their own butter and that butter was then added into a cake or they made cake without butter and without eggs. That's what I was trying to do in some of the recipes, which people can't quite get their head around that the cake that doesn't have eggs in <laughs> and that you have to leave overnight. And so it's kind of, uh, I get these funny um, Instagram messages or texts or whatever just saying, I think you might have left the eggs out. <laughs> the recipe. 
which is really funny for me. It's like, okay. Um, but then people try it and think, oh, my God, this, this thing is, is crazy that it works. But it's just, it's just kind of breaking a mold that was already there for, for so many years. And that, um, well, you, you, you know, you, you have a, a discussion in the book about um, are these cakes or breads? Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Well, I think when I started, the, the first sourdough cake that I had done was a banana cake. You know, people say banana bread. But if you mm-hmm. taste traditional banana bread, it's really, really sweet, and it tastes like a cake. So I'm like, well, why are you calling it a bread? Uh, but the one I made looked like a bread. It looked like a big loaf of bread. You've used that pan. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, but it just rolls like a bread. It had a crust. And it, but it tasted like banana cake without, without the sweetness because it had fermented for up to three. Well, that ferment can, that cake can be fermented for up to five days in a tub well, in a fridge. Um, and crazy. I think because we're not using lots and lots of eggs or we're not using lots of sugar and we use molasses sugar and molasses sugar has got a slightly more savory taste to it than just using white processed sugar i think that's when people said well i'm not sure if it's got more of a bread if it tastes more like a sweet bread and in ireland we traditionally would have made things called sweet bread so i think that's kind of where it came from i see now i mean you mentioned uh, you worked at the uh, what bumblebee bumblebee yeah what is that well, Bumblebee was one of the original Whole Foods. You know, we obviously you've got them in the state, Whole Foods. And we, um, before we had the big Whole Foods brand, there was uh-huh. lots of lovely independent um, organic, uh, I mean, lots of people call them sort of hippie shops. So as a guess they were, they were that, you know, people who wanted an alternative life. They wanted to eat alternative food. I mean, it's it's very mainstream now, but at the time, this is like 25 years ago. You said you learned a great deal working there. Oh, I, I learned a huge amount working there. They were, because it was something which was resonated with me too, and I wanted to learn about organic and biodynamic food. There was a zero-waste policy then at Bumblebee, which is now very really... It's, it, was, it was crazy. They, we wasted nothing there. I mean, we had to learn to use every part of a vegetable or every part of a, a piece of fruit. Or, you know, in, in, traditionally you'd think, oh, that seems a bit off where it's going. And the owner would be like, no, this is perfectly fine. And she was right, of course. But because we're kind of programmed to think if something feels a little bit soft, it must be on its way out. <laughs> and I, that's, it's like learning about provenance there and a lot of dried fruits and nuts that came in from the Mediterranean and they used a lot of oil, uh, olive oil and good olive yeah, oil. Yeah, I was there. surprised in an English cookbook that you were using, in addition to the traditional fat, you were using olive oil. Yeah. Did, we use, did, um, did you come from I used that? Like a, from, I did, yeah. I think the idea of using... We, we really started that in London. I mean, other people talk about all oh, this very famous chef, uh, started the olive oil cakes. And I thought, well, they didn't actually. We were making those at Bumblebee 25 years ago. Yeah. Because the owner would be like, how do you keep moistness? You can preserve a cake. You can preserve a bread. You you know, she was very much into getting the most out of what we were making. And 
we weren't, you know, you, you didn't at the end of the day have the luxury of throwing stuff in the bin because, we, you know, it was, a, it was a, a community project. You just didn't do that. So we had to learn ways then of looking after product and using ingredients that gave a much longer shelf life and, and really made it um, not disposable, you know, because everything's disposable. And they were so against at Bumblebee, they were so against a sort of disposable culture. And she, they were really front runners in London for, uh, you know, bring your own bag, bring your own jar. Bring oh, your, really? They, that was all like, yeah, and now in London it's a big deal. But yeah, I, but I 25 years ago was amazing. It's 25 amazing. years ago, these people were really, you know, on, on top of an amazing idea that they really believed in too. It wasn't a, just but, a commercial you, enterprise. This was, you had to have had a predisposition to this to actually sign on with them. Well, I did. I think it was very natural for me working there. It was, um, I mean, we would have, I, I would speak to my grandfather about organic and he'd be like, but that's all you ever ate. I mean, what are we, why, why, why are we labeling this food now? Really? It's like, uh, and it was a very, it was very natural. And when you got a cabbage, it was covered in soil and you got carrots, they were covered very, very much, you know, like my Irish background. Whereas in other kitchens, I was seeing stuff come in in other sort of commercial restaurant kitchens, and everything was clean and washed and sterile. And I thought it just didn't have any. I don't know. I I didn't feel any passion for that. Uh, Peter's young cousin was uh, worked for a bit as a um, um, nanny, kind of. There were no pair, I guess they called it, um, in the states, and she came to visit us and. um, she became apparent she had no idea what beetroot actually looked like because to her it always <laughs> came sliced in a plastic bag <laughs> yeah. and sliced with a crinkle slicer too. Exactly. <laughs> so that was funny. Um, yeah. you, you were you were early on with experimenting also with the specialty alternative flowers. Yes. Which is not yeah. as easy as, as people assume because they behave in different ways. Yeah, they do. And I think, um, and it's also, just because I always say to people now, just because it's an alternative flower doesn't mean it's going to taste good. You know, that's the other thing. It's like people put camut and uh, they use a lot of uh, coconut flowers and stuff here and gram flour. I'm like, well, actually, that doesn't taste very nice in a cake. So we see, were I, doing, I wouldn't like um, coconut flowers. I'm not crazy. No, and, and a lot of people use coconut here and processed coconut fat and things. And I just think there, there's so many other things that we could be doing to make. Well, the reason I started um, to experiment with the other flowers was because I was trying to get people to not just be using the wheat flowers because I thought we're the world's so much bigger than this. And eventually mm-hmm. we're not going to have enough wheat to feed the world. Let's try and do something else. So we we made our own chestnut flour and we used a lot of buckwheat flour really? and almond flour was a big one for us. And we were doing it because there was a sort of the gluten intolerant uh, phenomenon became a big thing in, in the UK about 25 years ago as well. And we, we had lots of customers who really struggled with gluten intolerance or little kids that would get eczema if they ate cake with gluten in. So we had to find ways of, because we were in the business, it was really about everybody could eat what we made. It wasn't just exclusive. 
And so that's when we started making vegan and gluten-free and dairy-free products because we want it to be inclusive for everybody. Yeah, well, you, you said most of these recipes in the cookbook are actually vegan or, you know, vegan. Or A lot of them are vegan, yeah. Yeah. Vegan and gluten-free. Well, another thing that you were early on, which is now a major driver of, of um, food markets, is um, health and wellness. Yeah. So you said even a cake I mean, can be nutritious. Yeah, I think if you're using things like uh, fruit, berries, uh, herbs, um, just giving things. It's also about the senses. So when people eat something, then it kind of brings their senses to life. That I think that's a big, you know, I don't know, there's something really lovely about that. It's like smelling something and then tasting it going, wow, yeah, you, it all You connects. mentioned smell a lot in, in this cookbook. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Huge, um, it's a huge thing for me because when I traveled around Morocco, everywhere, oh, yeah. you've got rasa hanout and cumin and orange flower water and mint everywhere. It's like you're literally overload. And I think in, I'm just trying to bring a little bit of that to people where they, you know, will taste something and say it, it's like being on holiday or, uh, it, gosh, it's kind of a, got a memory. You see, it's like food prompting memory um, from childhood or being away or having a nice time. And, you know, it's, that's what I, I try to do. I mean, I know it's a big ask of a cake. <laughs> but I always think if you're going to do it, I may as well, you know, like people... Well, how did you get connected to Morocco, of all places? I love Moroccan because, food, by the way. Yeah, because I was married to a man from Rabat. From where? For many years. Rabat. From Rabat. It's a city oh, in northern Morocco. So Peter, Peter has a Peter has a degree in geography from Cambridge, so he okay. knows where everything is. He He's a great traveling is. companion. That's really, really cool. The interesting, um, yeah, the interesting so thing is that's how I, it started. I, gra- I, gra- I graduated Cambridge, and the guy next to me in line was a Guinness. <laughs> well, you know, GH. <laughs> yeah. Alphabetical order. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I appreciated your your notes on um, on cultured butter as well. I did a whole yeah. long feature on the the benefits of cultured butter and the differences. Yeah. Of, so, um, and and what's Irish gold? Is that cultured? Uh, not anymore, but it used to be. Because I, oh, I wanted, because I didn't think it was cultured. I didn't think it was yeah. cultured. You mean but it started yeah. out being cultured? It did. Yeah, it was that's, all. I mean, that's uh, the product called Kerrygold. Is that the one? The Kerrygold. Kerrygold yeah. yeah. Kerrygold. Yeah. Yeah, it got to be big time. I think it's huge now. I mean, it's sort of worldwide brand. But I, I remember. Well, my grandparents used to make their own butter. That's kind of where my link to butter came from. And they both lived until they were 93 and ate copious amounts of butter. So, and they had amazing skin. And I'm sure it had something to do with the amount of butter they put on their bread. Yeah, well, I mean, I used to spend my summers at a dairy farm. You you remember when we visited Balamaloo and we had had to wait for for the owner to become available because she was she was learning to make cheese. Oh, wow. <laughs> D- D- Darina. That doesn't Darina. surprise me. Darina, oh, yeah. Darina's amazing, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, they've brought a huge amount to the Irish food scene, and I think they they really were the founding uh, group of people that kind of made us made other people in the world focus on Ireland, which is really a really important. Yeah, well, thing that's the whole be. point of this food on the edge. Do you know um, yeah. him? JP. JP um, McMahon. Oh, McMahon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's he really is serious about this, so we yeah. love that. You know, I was so sad to see it go. It's, it was going to be moved. But it was going to be anyhow. Um, now, uh, what are the benefits of fermenting? Now, you said first there's a, a deeper flavor. It keeps longer. It's healthier. Yeah. I mean, you don't really need any more benefits from that than that, huh? No. No, I don't. I'm not sure there is another benefit really to. Well, I mean, partly it's. I think the fermenting process is a very enjoyable process for people, and it kind of gives another dimension to cooking and baking. And um, no, nothing's I mean, fast. Nothing's fast, and you said the only thing you need actually um, is patience. It is, it and is. to plan ahead. And I mean, knowing you're not going to have it like tomorrow or the same day yeah and i think a lot a lot of the feedback i've had uh, is from people who said oh you know i didn't think i'd be able to wait and then i and they said it was just the dough was done put in the fridge rolled it the next day put it in the oven and they instead of thinking actually it's a really long process it's just bits of it you can do and then you come back to it and it just it just makes you think more about what you're doing i think that's Really, uh-huh. like when I bake, I obviously we bake in quite big quantities in terms of doing our mixes. We have to be really, really organized. But once you uh-huh. get into the routine of that, it's so easy, but you get a much better product. Now, don't you have to get up early in the morning, though? I do. I get up at 4 a.m. One of the houses that we lived in growing up in, in the famous burg of Huddersfield was the, uh, the the main the main road through town came through past our house and uh, you were woken up in the morning by the bread trucks <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> so I, so i know you must be an early bird yeah we i i am i mean i'm i feel now i've kind of put my time in because uh I've been doing this for 30 years, and it's been a lot of work. But I do think there's another generation which are inspired by what we're doing, and they kind of come, oh, yeah. you know, we're trying to build a new team so that I'm doing less of the 4 a.m.s because it really, I mean, it takes its toll on anybody who, who would do it, especially right. in, in mid-January and mid-COVID <laughs> restrictions. Yeah, that's um, true. Well, you know, let's, let's mention, by the way, that the whole point of this cookbook is also the, the your philosophy, of course, but also the, these wonderful, creative, uh, imaginative, delicious recipes, um, very yeah. unexpected combinations of things you do. Uh, tell us how you organize the, the recipes in terms of where well, you have, uh, um, I could get the, the list here, um, you you use a different basic recipe, and then um, the what we call variations. And, and yep. what do you call them now? You call them something different. We say offshoots. Offshoots. No. 
What was it? Offshoots. Offshoots. That's it, right? Um, yes. Um, but I mean, they're they're just absolutely ingenious. I mean, <laughs> of course, <laughs> you use polenta, which I don't know that many people using polenta, which is great because my background's Sicilian. Um, but oh, well. you, you have you have walnut butter loaf cake with labna and honey, you know, yeah. which of course is influenced by the Middle East. Um, but the combination, some of these combinations are just, I don't know how you even think them up. I think it's just been years of, of just trialing things and looking at things and thinking, you know, it's, it's nice to think outside the box a bit too, where we don't need to do the traditional, there's some tra- more, tra- slightly more traditional, uh, most chocolate and prune in there, which is traditional. I'm just looking at that. You like must that. have read my mind. I'm looking right yeah. at this very minute, the chocolate and prune cake. Yes. And when That's I saw the recipe, cake. yeah, when I saw the, the recipe, um, I thought, you know, the prunes are plum. <laughs> We're not yeah, allowed to say are. prunes anymore here. <laughs> Oh, I see. <laughs> it's bad for marketing. Oh, wow. Oh, they have to be called dried plums, right? Yes, dried plums. Really? <laughs> no, I mean, yes, really. Well, because people associate it with laxatives. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess you can't, people kind of do here, but it's just, you know, the it's a classic French thing as well, so we kind of can get round it in a way. Sort of in a more patisserie way, we say when we say prune. Um, but the combinations really came from, uh, I suppose, partly growing up in Ireland because we had and we'd have abundances of blackberries or plums or pears. It depended on the time of year, and then we would have herbs that we would use in savoury. But then I just thought, well, why why do we need to? Why can't we do a crossover? So we started making, I think, making the apple and tarragon cake, for instance, quite a long time ago. And everybody said, oh, my God, you put tarragon with chicken. I'm like, you can put things with whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, the and tarragon was one that jumped out at me. Tarragon yeah, that's really, yeah, that's a super cake if you get a chance to make it. It's a really good cake. Um, but the other, I just I just think you have to be a bit creative when, you, when you're doing something because it's also being making your own life interesting because I write the recipes and I have to work with them and develop them and I think well what would I like to have and you know basil and strawberries a perfect combination they complement each other you know things that you know will work not not everything works I don't think dry works necessarily but I just think the freshness um yeah, they just seem to work somehow. And I think the kind of fermenting them brings the flavor of everything out. So it's a very natural flavors. And nothing is overpowering. Because that's huh. the key. Yeah, you, you emphasize that. I thought, are there are there so many things that are surprises in, in this book. I mean, like your love of, of chilies with with desserts. You know, and yes. I... I came, what was the one I came across with uh, chocolate and chilies? Or, and I said to Peter, so I wasn't so crazy after all. I'm saying yeah. probably uh, 15 years ago, uh, I was on a, um, a green peppercorn uh, stage, and I loved green peppercorns, and I thought green yeah. peppercorns would go with just about anything. 
except chocolate yep. cake. And then I said, wait a minute. And I tried to get, because I don't bake. I mean, I just, it's possible. My mother was a baker. Um, yes. And um, I tried to get somebody to make me a chocolate and green peppercorn cake. And nobody it would. That, that sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds good. I think, yeah, I think, I think it, it sounds it, good. It's an amazing an amazing spice, but it's also who says that you have to just put it in savory. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's the thing. It, the key to it, though, is getting the right recipe and the right texture of the cake and having it, you know, balanced with something. Because if you have, say, green peppercorn in a drier chocolate cake, it wouldn't work. But if you have green peppercorn in a moist chocolate cake, it would be amazing. Exactly. And a chocolate <laughs> cake with, with olive oil, it would be fantastic. Yeah. So, yeah, you're, you're definitely onto something there. Well, here's brioche buns with blackberry and cardamom syrup. Now, that's absolutely yeah. an amazing photo as well. It's a lovely photo. We really like that It's one. incredible. Um, I, I told your publicist that what I would really want, I was craving just sort of practically inhaling all the items that you photographed for the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and you have sections I should mention people who um, who really need some extra help here. You have sections on fermented butter and on labna and, um, uh, and spice blends. Um, I, I, I never thought of using ras oh hanout in a dessert yeah. recipe ever it's in my whole life. But if you think about it, we use ginger. Yeah. So the Rasul Hanouj, I know it comes with a whole other collection of, of yeah. spices, but it's a, it's a similar idea, and it makes a really beautifully spiced cake. Yeah, and Zatar is one of my most favorite. Uh, yeah. My, my, yeah, yeah, totally. And, and you do chili sugar, you do all these things. Well, it's, it's yeah. a, a truly unique and wonderful book. And um, one last thing on it is, you you try to keep things simple at the yeah. beginning, and then you get a little bit more technical in the end when you're dealing yeah. with your sourdough and fermented cakes in the end, the final chapter in there. Uh, but they're wonderful, too. And I guess if you got enough confidence at the beginning, you'd be able to yeah, deal with the so. uh, yeah. Guinness yeah. and chocolate fermented loaf. That sounds like my husband. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is certainly um, a delight, and I, I could hardly wait till we, we're next in London, we could stop by, and uh, you're four to two, yeah, and, and, and sample this and meet you. So it's been delightful. That would be really nice. And thank you thank so you much so for much. having me. I've I really okay. enjoyed it. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Again, listeners, it's D. Ritali. Baking with Fortitude, and just it gives you the urge to get right with it just from the title. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. so much. Okay, thank you. Speak soon. Bye, bye. Bye. Well, that's it for this week. Um, join us again, as you know, same time, same place, uh, for on the menu and our next adventure. And until then, we wish you bye, bye.